Book of Jonah this morning, chapter number three. We've been coming through the book of Jonah expositionally, verse by verse and section by section and unpacking what God has given to us in this wonderful little book. And there's been so much that we've unpacked already. And now we're coming into the second half of the book and where we see uh, Jonah finally going to Nineveh as he ought to have done. And uh, so Jonah chapter number three, we're going to look at verse one down through verse number four is our text today. And the title of the message is The Grace of God's Message. The Grace of God's Message. So let's read it together now. The Bible says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. We look at Jonah, and we look at Nineveh, and we see some great principles and applications for our own life, and there's different lessons that we can learn within each of these, each of these categories. That We think about Jonah for a moment. Have you ever had a second opportunity to do something that you failed to do the first time? Surely all of us fit into that category, right? What about a third or a fourth or maybe even a fifth opportunity that you get to do something you should have done the first time? You know, often in our Christian life, we fail miserably, don't we? Because we're not perfect beings, even as Christians. Though we are saved and we are made righteous before God in His sight, in Christ, we still live in a fallen flesh. Uh, that uh, does not live perfectly. I don't know about you, but I long for the day of glorification, the day in which we will be changed like into the image of Christ. No Christian is perfect in their obedience, and every Christian, every Christian, all right, deserves no second, third, or any number of opportunities to do things right. None of us deserve that. But God is immeasurably merciful to us to forgive us when we repent and confess and restore us into fellowship and service with Him. And that's one thing that we see here in our text with Jonah. Jonah, that prophet who was obstinately disobedient to the first call of God to go to Nineveh, experiences another opportunity to obey God and do what he should have done in the first place. And what we see from this is the great grace of God in the very fact that He gives a message to Jonah to go again. Because God didn't have to do that. God didn't have to do that for us, did He? We are undeserving of even hearing the message of God that He's given to us. You see, what we find is grace throughout this whole passage. Grace extended to Jonah and God going to use him again. Grace extended to Nineveh in the fact that they are getting the message from God. You see, All of us need to understand today that any time that we have the Word of God, we get to hear the Word of God, we get to read the Word of God, it is an act of grace in which we get to hear from the living God, the one who has given us His Word. So what do we see from this text, from from the message that we find in our text today? Notice with me in our notes this morning, there's three points I want to bring to your attention. And there's different applications within, within them for us. But notice the first point I'll point out to us is the mission of reaching Nineveh. That's what we find. The mission of reaching Nineveh. Now I find it fascinating that God has, he has decreed that Nineveh is going to get this message. He's also decreed that Jonah is going to be the one to get it to them. We see God's sovereignty throughout the whole of the book. And notice with Jonah, in light of what we've experienced in Jonah thus far, that this mission of reaching Nineveh, it came to a prophet restored to service here. It came to a prophet who has been restored to service. Now, the opening of chapter 3, it seems very similar, doesn't it? Very familiar. These opening couple of verses take us back to where the story of Jonah all began. Now, you just imagine for a moment if Jonah had not rebelled the first time but obeyed the Lord... Well, we'd be starting in chapter 3, wouldn't we? And uh, the book of Jonah wouldn't be quite as exciting, would it? Uh, Certainly it would be good to hear of Nineveh hearing and this obedient prophet, but it's all in here for a reason, right? You see, Jonah's rebellion was indeed not without purpose and contributes to the bigger picture and message God is communicating through the book. And that overall message is this, is that God's grace 
does not have any boundaries. God's grace does not stick within the boundaries of Israel or stick within the boundaries of the United States. Christ died for people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And what we find with that is that even in Jonah's day, God is showing Jonah and the Israelites in us today that his mission includes the Gentiles as well as the Jews. We'll see that a little bit later as well. But notice the message of restoration here that comes to Jonah. In verse number 1, we read, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, those three words, the second time. The second time. Just pause and consider that truth. God's word coming to Jonah the second time. Why is that so significant? Because hearing God's word the first time was an act of grace in itself. And hearing it the second time, after all that Jonah has done against God, is a tremendous act of grace. A tremendous act of grace. How many I think of that hear God's message once, and that is an act of grace, but hear it a second time, that is an act of grace. But many hear it three times and four times and five times and over and over and over in their life and yet still reject the word of God. You see, that, that, is, that is something we need to take heed of. Because none of us deserve to hear the word of God or to be given the opportunity to serve God in any fashion, and yet God has chosen to use us and give us that opportunity. You see, he has set grace and mercy upon Jonah. Now we think, why does God speak to Jonah a second time? Well, there's a few reasons here. God is again giving Jonah clear instruction and direction of what he wants Jonah to do. Just in case you forgot Jonah, way back then when you ran the first time, I'm going to tell you again, Jonah... I want you to go to Nineveh. You're going to go to Nineveh and go preach to them. Now, some believe that Jonah, after he was exited back onto land from the fish, they went to Jerusalem to make sacrifice in the temple, much like he had mentioned in his prayer. It's very possible he did that. If that's the case, that it's perhaps that Jonah has gone into the temple, given his sacrifice, which is about a three-day journey from where he was spit up on land, and God's word comes to him a second time. It's likely that maybe he heard God's word there the first time. I don't know. But God is giving him this fresh command with clear instructions. But there's another reason God speaks to him the second time. Not only to give him these clear instructions, to remind him, but here's something we see about Jonah, is that Jonah has been humbled by all that he has experienced in his rebellion. You see, the Jonah of chapter 3 is not the identical Jonah of chapter 1. Though Jonah may still not agree with God's will to give Nineveh his message, he is no longer stubbornly fixed on running the other direction. So he gets this word this time. He doesn't make the decision, I'm going to go to Tarshish and run. He knows how that turned out. God has humbled him. God's chastening hand has that kind of effect on someone, doesn't it? Any of us been humbled by the correcting hand of God in our life? Of course we have, because that's what He does for His children. And those afflicting times, those times of correction, they help us to see where we need to be and what we need to do. Psalm 119, 67, the psalmist said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So the affliction that comes to Jonah is a prompting that now I've gone through that affliction. I've learned that that's the wrong direction to go, but now I keep your word. And that's exactly what we see in Jonah. But thirdly, I want you to understand that this renewed commission manifests that God has forgiven Jonah of his rebellion and restored him to service again. You see, Jonah essentially, when he went to Tarshish and got on the boat and refused to tell them what he was doing... He essentially thinks that I've resigned my position as prophet. But God did not accept that resignation, did he? God worked in Jonah to bring about restoration in him. Hugh Martin rightly comments and says, In bringing his erring servant to repentance and reinstating him in favor, he reinstates him in office also, sealing to him the assurance of his own personal forgiveness by the restoration of his holy calling. This reminds me of someone in the New Testament who greatly sinned but was also restored to service. And that person is none other than Peter, the apostle. We all know Peter. We love Peter. We identify with Peter, don't we? 
Peter denied that he even knew the Lord Jesus three times within the span of a short within a short span in an evening. And when he realized what he had done after that rooster crowed the third time, light bulb moment goes off. The Lord looks at him. He remembers the word of the Lord. He realizes where he is and what he has done. What did Peter do? He went out and wept bitterly. He's broken over the fact that he has denied his Lord, something he said he would never do. Was that the end of Peter? Did God write him off and say, okay, Peter, I'm done with you forever? Not at all. After Jesus rose from the dead, having died for sin, we find an encounter where Jesus intentionally comes to Peter there by the Sea of Galilee. And in John 21, 15, he says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, I know that you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. Jesus will repeat that question three times. But what's happening through this passage? Jesus is reminding Peter that he's not done with him. He's still going to use him. Despite his error, despite his sin, his rejection, his rebellion in that moment. And so we think about how wonderful it is to see the restoration for Peter and then also for Jonah. God has planned that the people of Nineveh will hear his message from Jonah and he has restored Jonah to be used in this way. Christian, that cuts to my heart and it should cut to all of our hearts. You say, why? Because how often do we as Christians need our own restoration in our Christian life? How often have we been a Jonah? We've run, we've rebelled, we've disobeyed, we've neglected, we've ignored the word of the living God. For the cause of our own pleasure, for the cause of our own flesh, our own endeavors, whatever it may be. How often we have sinned and disobeyed in such a way. And understand that every time we do so, we are sinning against the Most High, against the Holy One, against the Creator who gave us life and existence. We often fail to realize and remember how serious sin is against God. David, the man of, after God's own heart, he did such a thing when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. We read later in his confession in Psalm 51. What does he confess? He says in his prayer to the Lord, against you. Against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David committed a gross evil. But is that the end of David? No, it's not. We read later as he prays, he prays in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You see, David experienced restoration like Jonah did, like Peter did, and like countless other Christians have throughout history. And so the entire point here, understand, with God's hand of discipline, it, is, it has the end goal, end purpose in mind of bringing about your restoration. So if you're enduring the chastising hand of God, understand He's doing it out of love to bring you where you should be and you had, should not have departed from in the first place. So if you today are living in sin, rebelling against the word of God, you're in need of repentance and restoration, I call on you today, by God's authoritative word, turn back to your God. Quit running. Don't be a Jonah, because being a Jonah doesn't turn out so well. Know the forgiveness that God gives to his children. But not only do we see the mission here to Nineveh, not only did it come through a restored prophet, but it also came with potential risk of suffering for Jonah. Potential risk of suffering for Jonah, and I'll point that out as we come through this, and why. We notice this call comes to Jonah, and the same details overall, majority of it. Verse 2, God says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. God called it a great city earlier, and now he calls it a great city again. That's God's description of Nineveh. Well, just how great was it? Well, there's a few ways we can see how great Nineveh was. Firstly, it was great in its size. It was a great in its size. We notice that when Jonah gets to the city in verse 3, we read that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey breadth. Now, some have varying interpretations regarding the, the size of it. Now, I give you some notes here just for your own benefit. Many commentators interpret these as a reference to the physical size of Nineveh. 
Archaeological exploration has shown that the city was between seven and eight miles in circumference. Others suggest that maybe this is a formula to be translated, it's a very important city or a great city of God, emphasizing its significance. That's one expression. Another expression could indicate the duration of how long it was needed to visit and reach all of the city. Another expression could be that the great city refers to the greater Nineveh area, referring to several cities in the region, which would require maybe three days to reach all of them. Now, wouldn't be dogmatic about the actual exact size. Some believe it had a circumference of 50 miles. Maybe it did, I don't know. But one thing I do know is that God says Nineveh is a great city. It is great in its size. Not only do we see this, that it's not only great in its size, it was great in its population. We read later in chapter 4, verse 11, that there were more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. Now, most view this as a reference to children who are, don't know much because they're in their youth, right? Not knowing their right hand from their left. And if that's the case, you add in adults. That can get you upward to 500,000 people, give or take. The other interpretation is that maybe it refers to the total population of Nineveh as being spiritually ignorant. But even if you take that one, 120,000 people is a lot of people. That is no small population, especially for that day and time. It was a great city in its population. Not only that, it was a great city in its significance. Here's some historical notes for you, just to kind of lay the groundwork here, give you the background. Nineveh was a dominating presence situated on two major trade routes. The north-south trade route ran through Nineveh along the Tigris, while the east-west trade route followed the southern foothills of the Kurdish mountains and also passed through Nineveh. These routes created an ancient highway between the Mediterranean Sea and the Persian Gulf. So because of its location, Nineveh became a very wealthy city active in trade. Archaeological remains, such as the city walls and sculptures and gardens, squares and palaces and temples, they demonstrate that Nineveh was a very impressive city at the height of its glory in ancient times. It's a very significant place. But there's something else that Nineveh is great and good at, and that is its wickedness. It's evil. Do you recall what God said to Jonah the first time about Nineveh in chapter 1? He said in chapter 1 and verse 2, he says about Nineveh that their evil has come up before me. Meaning they, have, they are exceedingly evil. They are exceedingly wretched and wicked, grossly wicked. They were barbaric type of people. Violent, shedding blood. You see, a century after Jonah's time, Nineveh is entrenched in such actions again. The prophet Nahum pronounces judgment on them, and I'll read this to you to give you a little picture. If you look at Nahum, just a couple, just a few pages over in your Bible to the right, most for most Bibles, I'm sure. But Nahum chapter 3 and verse 1 through 7. Listen to his pronouncement against Nineveh. It says, Woe to the bloody city! All full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. They crack of the whip, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all of the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and the, de and the deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her. Where shall I seek comforts for you. Nahum gives us just a little glimpse into God's judgment that would later come on Nineveh and how wicked and evil they are. Now you just imagine for a moment Jonah walking into such a wickedly violent city before their repentance that we read of, not knowing what's going to take place. Just put yourself in Jonah's shoes for a moment. Walking into such a place, 
They are still hostile. They are unregenerate, haters of God, haters of Jews. Jonah, understand, he's not called to go preach to some church out in the wilderness, right? He's called to go to a wicked city. A wicked city. They very well may kill Jonah for his preaching. What else do you notice about this text? Did God promise Jonah protection? No. Did he, did he promise that, that all would be well once he declared the message? No. It could be that God's going to make Jonah a martyr with the message. Very well could have done that. Jonah does not know what the outcome of his preaching in Nineveh will be. It could be that his life is at stake. But there is something that Jonah does know beyond the shadow of a doubt. Something he's learned throughout the book of Jonah. Jonah has learned, the, in a very painful way, the unalter, unaltering sovereignty of God. He has learned that God is sovereign over everything. He knows that God has brought him here and that whatever God ordains in his journey to Nineveh, it will come to pass. So what you find with this is actually a positive for Jonah. Jonah fears God more than he fears these Ninevites because he's already gone up against God once and he lost. Friend, that's going to happen every time you go against God. You'll lose that battle. Jesus said to his disciples and warning them about not fearing man, Matthew 10, 28, he said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jonah, continuing in this journey, shows his faith to follow the Lord here, not knowing his future. And truly, Christian, understand this, that when it comes to obeying the Lord, it always comes down to that same principle, that we live and walk by faith and not by sight. We walk and obey Him by faith, trusting Him. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Proverbs 3.5 says, Because it is better to obey God, even unto death, than to disobey God unto His displeasure. So we need to cherish God's restoration that He gives us in our own spiritual lives. We need to obey Him by faith, as Jonah does here. But notice with me number two this morning. I want you to see something else with Jonah and what we find. Not only do we see the mission to reach Nineveh, it comes to a restored prophet, and there is great risk involved for him. But I want you to see the method of reaching Nineveh. What is the method of reaching Nineveh? And it is so plain and so powerful that we cannot miss this. It is preaching God's message to the people. It is preaching God's message to the people. Look with me at verse 3. We read that Jonah obeys. He arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, where exactly was Nineveh? Nineveh was nearly 500 miles away from where he was. 500 miles. Now, if you, if you went according to usual transport, camel or a donkey, some kind of animal, it would have taken you approximately a month or so to go that distance. If he walked, it would have been a whole lot longer. So Jonah embarks on this long journey to this great city, all to do what God's called him to do. And what is Jonah to do when he gets to Nineveh? It's so plain and powerful here. In verse 2, Jonah is called, God says to him, call out against it. Against what? Against the city. Against the city of Nineveh. But notice this statement, the message that I tell you. The message that I tell you. Now remember, we looked at it in chapter 1 that this word call out means to proclaim. It is what it is to preach, to herald, to announce aloud. This is what preaching is. It is the proclamation of truth. But there is a difference between chapter 1's command and chapter 3's command. And it's these little words right here. God tells Jonah to preach the message that I tell you. The message that I tell you. Now, no doubt that would have been what Jonah was to do the first time, but God wants to make sure Jonah gets the picture here. You're going to go and preach the message that I'm going to give you, not one that you would like to give them, not one that you think should be there, but the one that I give you. Jonah is to preach the message of the Lord God Almighty, and this somewhat parallels what, what God 
told Jeremiah the prophet when he called him. Jeremiah 1, 9 through 10, we read, Then the Lord put on his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build um, and to plant. For Jeremiah, it was my words are you going to preach. So, so Jonah is in no way to preach his own words, but he is to preach the words of God. And here, Christian, understand that this is the great principle that the church must understand in practice today and in every generation until Jesus comes is that we are called to preach not our words, but only the words of the living God. The method of reaching sinners is the same today as it was in Jonah's day. The method of changing hearts, seeing conversions to Christ, seeing the saints edified for the church to be grounded and strong, it is in the preaching and teaching of the Word of God as He has revealed it, Christian. We are to preach the word of the living God, unaltered, by our own attempts to make it more palatable for the culture around us or more acceptable for the people among us. So why do you emphasize this, preacher? Because this is what's happening in the church in America. The word of God is being altered, changed to fit the culture and what the people would like it to be. Now, here's a great New Testament example of why this conviction is so important for us. 2 Corinthians 4. Turn with me there. You'll see what the Apostle Paul says of his conviction regarding this. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1 through 6. Notice that he writes to the church and says, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with what? God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we proclaim, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What do you notice about Paul's conviction here? Well, firstly, he recognizes that his ministry is completely due to the mercy of God. He says, we've obtained this ministry, not by ourselves, but because of the mercy of God. Just like Jonah, you understand, no one is worthy of being used of God in His glorious purposes, but God in His mercy chooses to use people as His vessels. But notice in verse 2, here's what I want to point out, that Paul's conviction in verse 2 is that he refuses, he refuses to practice cunning or tamper with God's Word. He will not alter it or adjust it in any way. Why? Because you cannot improve upon the Word of God. There are many who think that today, but you can't do it. You cannot improve upon the Word of God to try to make it more powerful, to try to make it more fitting for the ears of the people. In fact, to try to tamper with the message of God is only to diminish the message that God has given us to give. The message that will save souls. Anybody ever gone to a soda fountain at a restaurant, filled your cup up with ice, and then the drink you were really looking for to drink, Dr. Pepper, if it's me, or root beer. You get that first drink and you realize, man, this is watered down. What do you do with that drink? If you're like me, I'd dump it out. If you're braver than me and endure, that's great, but... 
I'd dump it out. I don't want it. It's no good. In a very similar fashion, you understand that there, there is a lot of preaching today that has watered down the Word of God by either trying to take away from it or add to it. The Pharisees did that in Jesus' day. And what did Jesus say to them? He said, you make null the Word of God by your tradition, by your commandments of men. It was having a negative effect. And likewise, understand this, that God is disgusted when His Word is watered down and tampered with and altered, all to better suit the sinful appetites of man. Paul refuses to do such a thing. And I'll tell you today, church, I refuse to do such a thing. This must be the conviction of our church, always and forever, that the Word of God is our foundation, unaltered from anything that's in it. Doesn't matter if it sits well with the people or the culture. There's a trend today in which we need to make church more acceptable for the lost to come in. No, friend. That is not how worship works. That is not what the Scripture teaches. We come to worship God, not the sinners. And it is in the worship of God when His Word is preached with its, with, without any altering to it. It is there that God works on the sinner by which He draws them and convicts them and brings about change to their hearts. Friend, let us not ever come, come to accept that or fall into such a thing. You'll notice that thirdly, Paul is committed in verse 5. Notice what he says, to preaching not themselves, not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. God help me if I ever get up here and make the message about me. There is a lot of that that happens today. The pulpit is full in many places of the preacher being the hero of the story. There is only one hero of the story, and his name is Jesus. I pray every time I get up here, hide me behind the cross of Christ. Lift up your son today. This is what Paul says. We preach Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord, friend. You see, you see we, we must preach Christ alone and no one else. You say, why is that? Because only Christ is Lord. Only Christ is Savior. Only Christ is King. There is none other. And so to preach any other, any other person or any other method, understand, it is to rob him of his due glory and to send people to hell with a false religious hope. We cannot do such a thing. And as we look at how this ties into Jonah, you understand that God tells Jonah, you're going to go there and preach the message I give you. Now, this, this, this hit home with me just in reference to today's culture in our own nation. What is it that Nineveh needed? The great city of Nineveh, as great and vast and significant as it was, it didn't need some political revolution or some economic enhancement to save them. What did it need? It needed the word of the living God. It needed the word of the living God. So Christian, we have to understand that, that the central need of all people, including those of our own godless nation, is the gospel of Christ. Doesn't matter how much outward change you may bring to a land. If the internal heart is not changed, it doesn't make any difference. The same applies to your own individual life. You may do all kinds of outward changes and think you're turning over a new leaf and changing things up, getting better. But if you don't know Christ internally, it doesn't make the difference. Friend, our, our nation, our churches, our communities... They need the gospel of Christ unaltered in its pure beauty. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they scoff at it or if they're skeptical of it. Jonah didn't change the message to fit the evil Ninevites where they might accept it a little bit better. And guess what? In not changing it, it had a supernatural impact. And church, this is the same calling to the church today. This is where the big picture of Jonah ties into this. What has God commissioned the church to do? Not just go to Nineveh, but go to all the nations. Jesus said, and before he ascended in Mark 16, 15, he said to them, go into all the world and do what? Proclaim the gospel. 
proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. You see, Jonah was called by God to preach the message that I tell you. And how urgent and prevalent this truth is for us today. Anyone who comes into this building, understand, so long as I'm standing in this pulpit, they will hear from God alone. They will hear from thus saith the word of God. There's a reason why we open every sermon with open your Bibles too. Because you're going to look at what God has to say about something. Because the scriptures are the message that God has told us. It will be offensive. Because the gospel is offensive. Truth is offensive. It will be heart cutting. But it will also be heart changing. And edifying to the soul. Because it is God's work. And we must be faithful to it. As you look at Jonah here and what he's called to do. We can just picture this scene of Jonah entering Nineveh. And I want you to kind of imagine it for a moment. His arrival to the city. Here he comes, and guess what Jonah is? He's a foreigner. He's not a Ninevite. He's a foreigner. He doesn't appear like the usual Ninevite in their culture, and most would have recognized him as a Hebrew. They're enemies. And as a Hebrew, his God would have been somewhat heard of because pretty much all the surrounding nations knew of the God of Israel. His arrival would not be some silent arrival. It would have gotten attention of the people. Which brings me to number three. We see the message for reaching Nineveh. The message for reaching Nineveh. And there's a twofold aspect I want to bring to your attention before we close. The first aspect is that Nineveh was worthy of God's wrath. Nineveh was worthy of God's wrath. He said, well, what is the message that God wants him to preach? Look at it. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city about a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's the message. Forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Short and simple and to the point, right? This message God gave Jonah is only five words in the Hebrew language. Now I know what all you're, you're all thinking. Why can't you preach shorter sermons, Pastor? Right? Can't you, why can't you get one done in five words or make it just a little bit shorter? Because I love you too much. I've got to give you more truth. Charles Spurgeon said, surely if men's hearts were right, short sermons would be enough, right? But we, we got a lot of work we need from the Word of God. We need as much of God's truth as we can get. I understand there's a, there's a difference between a long sermon and a hostage situation. So I, I'm, I'm trying to learn the balance between the two. So don't hold it against me. But here's what we find with Jonah's message. Regardless of its length, look, look closely at it. There's not one ounce of hope given to Nineveh. None. Not one call to even repent or turn from your ways. There's no promise of potential mercy or restoration. There is only a message of doom and destruction coming to them. Now, I'm sure Jonah probably had no problem pronouncing that message because he didn't love him anyway. But that's the message God told him to preach. What's it mean that Nineveh would be overthrown? The word overthrown here refers to being demolished. It's the same word used in reference to when, when, when Sodom and Gomorrah were overthrew by God. We read in Genesis, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what, what grew on the ground. How did God overthrow Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, we read in Genesis 19, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew them. He destroyed them. Now, this doesn't mean that God was exactly going to do it that way to Nineveh, but he could have. He may also have just used another nation to come in and destroy them. He could have opened up the earth and just swallowed all of Nineveh and erased them from existence. God could exact his wrath on their wickedness however he pleases. But you notice that this message of Jonah isn't the kind of message that draws a big crowd, does it? But it's the message Nineveh needed. You see, such a message coming from Jonah's God would make the Ninevites aware that this judgment is due to their wickedness. 
They are worthy of destruction, worthy of the wrath of God. And they realize that. But let me bring this to your attention. Who else is worthy of the wrath of God? Every sinner that draws breath in this world. Now, we look at groups like Hamas and ISIS and others who are barbaric in their violence and think, man, they deserve the wrath of God, don't they? It's easy to say that. What about the upstanding citizen who doesn't kill anybody, doesn't steal, works hard, but yet he does not know the redemption of Christ? Is he worthy of the wrath of God? Absolutely he is. You say, why is that? Because every person in this world, no matter how outwardly morally good they may appear to be, have sinned beyond measure against their holy creator. By nature, by acts of commission, and by acts of omission. We cannot count the sins of our life in a single day, let alone the sins of a lifetime. And God pronounces... That this is a prevalent matter upon all people. Romans 1.18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now notice, is God's wrath kindled against some unrighteousness, those really bad things, or all unrighteousness, even the little lies that we may have told and forgot about? All unrighteousness, friend. You see, this, friend, is why the preaching of the Word of God must be all that God has said and not just parts of what natural man may find okay. It's not okay just to preach that God is love, but that He's not a God of wrath too. He is both. It's easy to listen to the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, but without the wrath of God and the justice of God, those things don't have their proper meaning. And thus, this is the command to preach the whole counsel of God. Look with me at one other passage I think would parallel with this. In 2 Timothy 4, in verse 1 through 4 for a second, you're going to see something that looks familiar to our own day and age. Paul is telling Timothy, this young pastor, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, By his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. That's the command, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why why does Paul want, want Timothy to be so grounded in preaching the word? Verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. He's warning Timothy. Keep preaching the word. You're going to have some that aren't going to hear it. They're going to create their own teachers that tell them what they want to hear. And make them feel good. Tickle their ears. He says you just keep preaching the word. Keep preaching the word. There is so much itching ears in our day. There are many attempts to make heaven look appealing enough to the flesh so as to get some kind of profession of faith out of someone without any regard of their need of salvation from the judgment of God. If I can just get somebody to say a prayer or do this or do that, and then I've got a profession, but the gospel's never been expounded and preached to them. Friend, there is so much deception there. Where is the preaching on hell? Where is the preaching on eternal judgment? Where is the preaching on God's holy and righteous justice coming to all sinners? You see, without the good news of the gospel, you, 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 without the bad news, you don't have the good news of the gospel. You say, oh, I need to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from what? Eternal judgment, friend. The world needs to be told that they are exceedingly sinful, worthy of God's wrath, headed for judgment if they do not repent and believe on Christ. Luke 13, 3, Jesus said, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And even we as Christians need to be reminded of the severity of sin and what it cost Jesus. 
So what the wicked world around us needs more than anything is not sugar-coated preaching to tickle the ear, but it needs the word of the living God. The message of God's judgment, his, our sin, what we deserve, but also the good news of the gospel of Christ, that he has suffered and died and bled for sinners and rose from the dead for those who believe. Letter B, we also see that Nineveh not only was worthy of God's wrath, Nineveh was nearing God's wrath. You see, Nineveh is inching closer and closer to wrath day by day. And how true is that of everyone else in the world? How many people every day are one step closer to the wrath of God? There's not a day that goes by that God's wrath is not kindled against the wickedness of humanity. Psalm 711 tells us God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. You understand that should a sinner die in their sins, unrepentant and unbelieving in Christ, should a sinner die in their sins, they immediately will experience the wrath of God on their sinfulness. They don't go to purgatory, some holding place. They don't go to heaven. They go to hell, a place of torments, friend. A place of torments until the final day in which all the resurrected will come to the final judgment and that final verdict for all the unbelieving and unrepentant will be the lake of fire. Revelation 25, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he is thrown in the lake of fire. You say, oh, that sounds so harsh, it sounds so bad. It is. That's the warning to all of us. Repent and believe on Christ. You are the sinner worthy of this. I am the sinner worthy of this. But the world hates this message. They tune in to something like this and they call them Bible-thumping Christians. They laugh their way to hell. Let us not, let, let us, let us not slip and, and negate the truth all for the sake of what the world scoffs at. But here's something I want to point out to you too today. Though Nineveh was nearing God's wrath, what else do you notice about Jonah's message? Jonah preaches, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. They've got 40 days. They've got 40 days. What's that show us? There's a 40-day grace period right here. A window of opportunity to repent. To repent. And did you know that there is a window of opportunity for every sinner in this room to repent and trust in Jesus? You know what that window of opportunity is? It's today while you still live. Because tomorrow you may not still be living. Scripture never gives the instruction, repent later when it's more convenient for you. Because you might not make it to later. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 16, 6 and verse 2, he says, In a favorable time I have listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, later is the favorable time, and later is the day of salvation. He says, Now. Now is the day of salvation. So what does that mean for us? God commands every person everywhere to repent and believe the gospel when they hear it. Not later. Today, friend. If today you see your sin for what it really is, that you're worthy of God's righteous judgment, that Christ has died for your judgment and rose from the dead, you can trust and must trust on him alone today. Jesus said in John 3.18, Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There is only one way of salvation for each of us here today. And that is the redemptive work of Christ alone. Because you and I, we can't get there on our own. We can do nothing to save ourselves or contribute to it. It is all in the work of Jesus. It was his blood that was shed. It was his life that was given. He's the one who rose from the dead. It is all in him. And to reject him is to accept wrath, but to believe on him is to inherit eternal life. 
And so the overall message is very plain, the grace of God's message. And here's, here's why that's a grace. Think of God didn't have to give Nineveh anything. He didn't have to send Jonah. He didn't have to give us his word to say, hey, look who you are and where you're headed and what you need. He would have been loving and just and holy and merciful and gracious if he'd left us in our sin only to die in our sin. The very fact that you're hearing the word of God today is an act of God's grace. And really the application for all of us is what are we doing with his message? If you're lost in your sin today, you have heard you need salvation. You are heading straight forward to the wrath that you're worthy of in Christ alone is salvation. What's God call you to do today? Repent and believe the gospel. Trust in him alone. If you're a Christian, you're running from God, you're being a Jonah, God's told you, turn around. There's forgiveness in him. Let us heed the word of God and apply it to our life today. Let's stand our feet as we close in prayer and a song. Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning and thank you so much for the message of the gospel. How unworthy we are of anything that you've given us. The fact that your gospel message has remained the same and continued on from century to century and ultimately reached me at the age of seven years old is an act of grace that is beyond what I can fathom. I praise you, Father, for saving me. I praise you for those here today that you have saved. I praise you that you're not done saving sinners. Lord, I pray that if there's one here today that's lost, that you would convict them, bring them broken before the cross of Calvary, that they look only to Christ and not trust in themselves or their religious works or anything they've done, but look only to Christ. Help us who are saved, Father, to draw near to you, to love you with all of our hearts and our souls, that we glorify you in our life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.